Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Wednesday afternoon. It is the 28th of July, so the end of the month is a few days away. Uh, among the other things we're expecting to occur over the coming days is for Steve Allen to finally present his final reports. The long-delayed final report and what became known as the Allen Inquiry, this uh, public inquiry that has been, I, I got to say, anything but public, looking into environmental groups and to what extent uh, they received foreign funding, to what extent there was any kind of a conspiracy involving that foreign funding to somehow landlock Alberta oil. It's no secret that there are environmental groups who have uh, targeted, singled out to the oil sands and pipelines. Some of those groups have received funding from other groups in the United States. Was there anything illegal about that? Was there anything untoward about that? Anything sinister about that? I think there's an expectation here that the Allen Inquiry come back with some sort of a finding about something sinister, something untoward, something illegal, some kind of a conspiracy. Otherwise, this may end up being a big nothing burger. And given the way that this was billed by the premier initially, and some of the assumptions right out of the gate about all of this, not to mention the amount of money that was spent on this, I think Albertans should expect more than just a big dud. Now, I haven't seen the report. Obviously, uh, I'm assuming uh, folks listening haven't seen the report. So we'll see what is in the final report once it's publicly released. And by the way, that's barring another extension. There have been several for this inquiry. I wouldn't rule it out at this point. But maybe late on a Friday afternoon in the dead of summer is a good time to drop a nothing burger. Our next guest has uh, certainly been connected to all of this. We spoke with her uh, a few months ago about uh, her own dealings, her own meeting with uh, Commissioner Steve Allen. And obviously, she's been following all of this very closely and has seen the draft version of the final report. And uh, in terms of something big here, uh, let's just say uh, it does not bode well. So maybe uh, adjust your expectations down significantly. Joining us on the line this afternoon is a lawyer, writer, researcher, uh, Sandy Garasino, also a journalist with Canada's uh, National Observer, where she had written extensively about this matter. Sandy Garasino, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Uh, so do you have any insight, by the way, in terms of whether this is actually going to get released? If there is a draft version of the final report, it indicates maybe we're close to the end of this process. But what's your sense? Well, we should be close to the end. I mean, the, the, the July 30th, so that's Friday, um, is, is meant to be the deadline. Um, the report that I have seen, and I've seen it in its entirety, is a draft that was um, portions of which were uh, given out to organizations that um, have had findings made in relation to them uh, and have had an opportunity, they have now had an opportunity to respond. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I imagine that 
uh, there may be some amendments to this report based on what responses are given by the environmental groups and the funders that have been named in the report. So what I've seen is probably not likely to be the final product. Right. Uh, in terms of what you have seen, though, and all of the expectations about what this inquiry is going to uncover, is there anything there? Uh no conspiracy, nothing, no impropriety, no wrongdoing, no illegality. That is the bottom line. There are a lot of other findings. There is a technical way in which uh, the commissioner finds that different groups have been part of campaigns, which he terms anti-Alberta because that's the formal language that the terms of reference provide. Uh, but there is, but the bottom line here is no conspiracy. Everybody was basically motivated by um, efforts to um, support land and marine conservation or climate change. Those are the primary motivations of everybody, the funders um, and the grant recipients, and nobody did anything wrong. Now, that may not surprise you. It may end up, I think, surprising or disappointing a lot of Albertans who had their expectations raised. But mm-hmm. um, was was this inevitable? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on what Steve Allen uncovered and, and didn't uncover, it would seem? Well, uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I was pleased by was that the database that I... Um, uh, I wrote about extensively in the National Observer, and I employed a database and did my own research. That is the primary database. That and another Canadian database by Bloomberg uh, were the two main um, sources that he went to. Uh, but I am still concerned that he appears to have spoken to about a 100 witnesses. There's no transcript. We have no indication of what those people said, who they were, uh, who was paid, who wasn't paid. And, um, you know, there's just so much mystery in this. But the primary thing that concerns me is that he made findings about the intentions of organizations largely based on um, sketchy summaries, uh, there was no examination of the original grant applications and grant reports, audits, any of this kind of thing. It actually is quite weak in that respect, and it really surprises me that we're two years in. And, I mean, I wrote my piece in in October of 2019, and, and he's mainly covering a lot of that same that same ground. Um, and I think that what Albertans um, should know here is that I think that, that uh, you know, there's, I don't agree with a lot of the things that a lot of the um, recipient organizations have said. There's two main parts of this. There was a tar sands campaign, which was quite small and confined. There are other parts that were largely uh, Canadian and British Columbian land and marine conservation efforts, most of them undertaken before any pipelines were contemplated. Um, that spending has been kind of pulled in that I think makes the makes a total dollar amount seem larger. But yeah. still, we were largely talking about a pretty small um, campaign by environmentalists. 
And that's the thing. And look, I mean, clearly the government believes, and I suspect a lot of Albertans believe, that you know a lot of these groups are are misguided or just flat out wrong about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the point of this inquiry was. This wasn't about to debunk environmental groups. This was in search of a, a much more sinister conspiracy, wasn't it? Well, uh, yes, I would think so. And I think this is actually something that's really concerning, is that there is honest disagreement between citizens and governments about what are the true facts. But what's gone on here and what has really concerned me is that people's characters and integrity and honesty and even patriotism has been attacked as if they are doing something nefarious, they have been sneaky, they've been doing something secret, and there is no evidence of that. And I really think it's time for people's names to be cleared. We can disagree all we want. We are all Canadian citizens. We are all trying hard to do our best and do our best for other citizens as well and for the future. And it would be really helpful for all of us if we would just kind of stick to that. Yeah. One interesting point you you find in all of this, and it concerns uh, the group Ducks Unlimited. And I mean, look, here's the thing. Either we're concerned about foreign funding or we're not. And I don't think we can pick and choose which foreign funding we're okay with and which we're not. But it seems as though maybe this report is doing just that. What, What did you find with regard to Ducks Unlimited? Well, that does concern me. And and once again, Ducks Unlimited was redacted from the report. I know it was Ducks Unlimited because I have done such deep research into what foreign grants have been given uh, to different Canadian organizations. And Ducks Unlimited is by far, by far the largest recipient of foreign grants, most of which um, were dedicated to uh, boreal forest conservation and and wetlands conservation. Um, their grants were redacted from this report, notwithstanding that the commissioner found that the boreal forest and wetlands projects um, could be framed as anti-Alberta campaigns. So it's very, it does smack of picking and choosing because obviously you know ducks unlimited that's a hunter's group that's kind of a that's kind of a friendly to alberta yeah um if if indeed the final version of this report is is something close to what you saw in the draft report does it if nothing else maybe put a lot of these narratives to rest this has driven so much of the debate especially in alberta over the last few years do you think we can finally maybe close the book on most of this or do you suspect that a lot of this is going to continue well uh, you know i i very this this um inquiry was very politically driven obviously you can see it in the language you know were you part of an anti-alberta um uh, campaign uh, and the I, all the discussion of conspiracy that sort of thing so i suspect that people like the premier of alberta who have been really politically motivated on this and this was part of his political campaign he will probably continue and he will probably try and get um you know, kind of bootstrap any of the findings that may assist him politically. But I do think it's important for citizens generally to understand that dissent is something that is not only allowed, it is celebrated in our in our environment. I mean, Albertans have the right to dissent from federal politics and other people. You know, this is this is part of the the. Uh, 
the back and forth in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, yeah. I do hope this is the end of a personal attacks on environmentalists because a lot of these people have suffered a very great deal from uh, from personal attacks. Well, we'll see what uh, we get on, on Friday, if indeed we get something. Uh, Sandy, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thanks for having me on, Rob. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Sandy Garasino, uh, lawyer, writer, researcher, journalist uh, for the National Observer. And uh, yes, yeah, she did end up uh, finding herself kind of dragged into all of this. She had a meeting with Steve Allen, which she was not allowed to talk about until all of a sudden the inquiry disclosed that that meeting had occurred. And uh, so now finally, I think it was back in February, I believe, that she was able to talk about it. So as a result of that, she has seen this draft report. So if you're hoping for the juicy stuff about uh, all of these grand conspiracies and money laundering and all of that, you may be disappointed. Ultimately, we'll see what's in the final report, and uh, we can judge it on uh, what we all see for ourselves. But there's a little bit of a sneak peek, at least what was in the uh, draft version of uh, that final report. So your thoughts on whether you still think this is all a, a worthwhile exercise? And what about that point that she makes where we can have big disagreements on policy? And just because a government of the day decides that something is good for the country or the province, being opposed to that doesn't make you anti-Alberta or anti-Canada. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Uh, I'm sure, as we all remember, the entry of Uber into the Calgary market was contentious, to say the least. And it's been that way in, in a lot of cities across North America, even right around the world. Uh, these big rideshare companies are controversial in terms of their practices, uh, their business practices, employee practices, all of that. So, yes, there, there is still contention when it comes to ridesharing, and in particular, the big ones, Uber and Lyft. But I think it's important to look at the other side of it as well. What's the impact of, of making these kinds of services more widely available? And the reason why these companies have found such a footing in big cities is because people appreciate the convenience of being able to easily get a ride to where they need to go. And in a lot of cases, that's simply back to their home. Obviously, the pandemic has been somewhat disruptive to the whole idea of uh, going out for a night, going out for some drinks. But as things start to get back to normal, maybe this becomes more relevant. Now, some interesting new research looking at the impact of ride sharing on alcohol-related traffic fatalities. And in a way, maybe it shouldn't surprise us. Uh, but it confirms, I guess, that point here. That services like Uber have directly contributed to a reduction of drunk driving deaths in the United States by about 6%. So that's considerable. That, that's a lot of lives saved by this technology, by this business. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, these findings and maybe how it shapes some of the conversation around ride sharing. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon one of the authors of the report, Michael Anderson, as a professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource uh, Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Anderson, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks. I suppose it's straightforward enough in looking at the expansion and the reach of these companies and tracking drunk driving deaths in the U.S., but finding that direct connection is, is I suppose, taking it another step further. How did you go about this research, first of all? Uh, well, so we, we started it, basically my colleague and co-author, Lucas Davis, uh, 
came to my office one day and was like, hey, you know, did you see this article? It's probably in like the New York Times or something, but it was it was uh, documenting a kind of striking reduction in drunk driving fatalities in some of the big U.S. cities like <clears throat> New York, San Francisco, et cetera. And uh, so we were kind of wondering, like, you know, well, what's driving that? Uh, could it be, you know, ride sharing to some degree? And then we just sort of looked at, okay, well, you know, what have uh, what research is out there on that? Uh, and we saw that there were actually several papers already at that time, I think. Uh, but they they weren't sort of very satisfying because they didn't really have data on uh, ride sharing itself. All they could tell is whether or not Uber had entered a market, a given market, right. um, you know, by whatever, give a given year or month. And, of course, just because they start operating in a market doesn't mean that they've immediately scaled up, right? It takes months or, in fact, years to actually sort of get you know, the larger customer base, attract drivers to the platform, and so forth. And so, you know, Uber technically started operating the UberX service in 2012 in San Francisco. But, of course, by 2019, the, the number of rides they're giving is just dramatically different, many orders of magnitude higher. And so what we really wanted to do was, like, sort of attack the problem with real data on ride-sharing usage. Uh, and for a while, that was very elusive because it's not, you know, this isn't something that these companies report in their um, – you know, the public, uh, like, releases or anything like that because they view it as being sort of proprietary competitive information. Uh, and uh, so, so we, we weren't able to sort of get the data for a while, but eventually uh, we were actually able to negotiate some access to, uh, from Uber themselves to, to give us data to really uh, try to tackle this question. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it seems like some obvious obvious correlation here, right, that it wouldn't just be a coincidence that uh, the rise of, of ride-sharing would coincide with a, a decline in, in impaired driving. But but how do we know it's not a coincidence? Uh, well, so we're able – we have pretty detailed data, and so we're able to kind of take a lot of different uh, sort of looks at what's going on, and we at least convinced ourselves that uh, the, the effect that we're measuring is an actual, you know, effect, not just the sort of spurious – correlation. Uh, so what basically what we're doing is, you know, we, again, we have like uh, data on uh, ride sharing, like number of rides given essentially for a given census tract in a given month across the entire U.S. Uh, and so we're able to sort of construct very detailed measures of Uber's growth in different, uh, you know, all the different sort of cities and regions in the U.S. and then match that up against uh, drunk driving deaths. And we can see that there is a very strong and statistically significant relationship there. And again, we're looking at the actual, you know, the changes in these two things. So we're not just looking at like, oh, you know, San Francisco has, you know, fewer drunk driving fatalities and it also has higher Uber usage than, you know, some like uh, rural area in Texas or something like that. That's right. probably true. I and mean, both of those things are true. But, but obviously those two areas are not comparable with each other, right? So we don't want to sort of draw any conclusions from that. Rather, what we're basically saying is like, you know, San Francisco had much steeper Uber growth than a city like, I don't know, say Cincinnati or something like that. And simultaneous with that, we could see that San Francisco's drunk driving deaths declined at a faster rate than, say, Cincinnati. So those are the types of comparisons that we're able to make. Uh, and so we find like a very consistent relationship there. And we can also look at things like time of day, for example, right? So turns out that all of the effects we see or almost all of the effects we see are really concentrated in kind of the night and weekend hours, as you would expect, if the kind of mechanism that we all have in mind here is working. Uh, if you look during the daytime hours, when you wouldn't expect there to be a big impact of ride sharing on uh, drunk driving fatalities or, or really on probably any fatalities as all, since we do think it's primarily sort of the drunk driving uh, channel that, that this mechanism is being working through, 
uh, we don't see any any relationship. So that that also reassured us that, you know, what we're looking at here or what we're finding here is, in fact, a real effect. And it's significant. So 6.1 percent is the number you come yep. up with here. Yes. So what, what does that translate into? And first of all, in, in terms of numbers of deaths. Sure. So that's like several hundred deaths uh, per year in the United States. Um, so, you know, it's definitely, uh, I feel like anytime we're able to save a few hundred people per year, that's always a, a good yeah. thing. Now, obviously, you know, uh, relative to COVID numbers, it's not going to, uh, you know, move the needle quite as much. Um, but, but it is a, um, uh, you know, a, a non-trivial fraction of like, uh, of total drunk driving deaths. And, you know, furthermore, I should say that like, uh, you know, traffic accidents in general, and, and certainly drunk driving, uh, they're they're basically sort of the leading cause of death of uh, uh, for people who are you know, under who are like not elderly, non elderly adults or children mm-hmm. certainly uh, in the United States. Uh, so this is just you know sort of uh, traffic fatalities in general. I think uh, are a a really important public health problem. And any time we can have policies or uh, technologies that can help you know reduce those, uh, the, the, there's a lot of potential benefit there. Well, there is. And, and obviously, I mean, that, that represents, you know, clear social benefit. But, you know, can, can we ascribe a number to that in terms of an economic value? Because a lot of the conversation around ride sharing has been, you know, in, in the economic context. So how, how yeah. does lives save translate in, in that sense? Sure. So uh, so basically, you know, when policymakers sit down and try to evaluate policies, they're always trying to come up with you know, some some way to uh, to to measure like the benefits. Uh, of a given policy. And so what economists and policymakers often do is, is essentially uh, use something they call the value of fiscal life, which is sort of kind of the, the, the dollar benefit that they ascribe to a life saved. Uh, and so in the U.S. right now, like the government uh, ascribes a, a value of fiscal life of about $10 million uh, per life saved. And so we're able to take that figure, you know, apply it to our sort of life saved estimates. Uh, and then we came up with uh, an estimate of essentially something like uh uh, two to five billion dollars per year in uh, benefits in terms of lives saved, uh, and that you know that that number uh, is it, it, it's definitely uh, large. And in particular, we were interested in kind of comparing it to something like, uh, for example, Uber's market capitalization. So the you know the return on capital that essentially the uh, Uber shareholders are, are getting after their big IPO a couple of years ago. Uh, and what we found is that that the the sort of um, you know, life-saving benefits, when measured in economic terms, are actually of similar magnitude to uh, to the market capitalization. Just to you know, give some sense of the the kind of orders of magnitude we're we're talking about here. Well, some significant findings. I think an important contribution to the ongoing conversation around ride sharing. Uh, this research it's up at the National Bureau of Economic Research, nber.org. Professor Anderson, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Michael Anderson, uh, co-author of this study. He's, as mentioned, a professor and a head graduate advisor as well at the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics, UC Berkeley. So some of it, I mean, it, it just there's, there's a certain logic to this, right, that if you make it easier for people to get a ride home, you're going to have fewer drunks on the road. So I, and that was even part of the argument, you know, in, in selling the idea of rideshare in the first place. And, and this bears it out. That's indeed been the impact. Now, again, how these companies uh, do business, how they sort of establish themselves in a market, the regulations that need to apply here, the, you know, the impact on the taxi uh, industry, all of that is, is still relevant. But, 
you know, this, this just underscores a crucial point here, that this can help save lives. And I think you've, you've increasingly seen, you know, groups like uh, Mothers Against Strong Driving embrace that potential. You know, someone's had a few too many, shouldn't be driving. Let's make it as easy as possible for that person to make the right decision. You know, the ease of, of the app, the technology, the business model really lends itself to that. Well, good afternoon. Welcome aboard along the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Our telephone number in Edmonton, 780-496-0063 in Calgary, 403-974-8255. Now, we got some issues to talk about in this hour, but uh, I, I do want to have a conversation around vehicles. I mean, part of the conversation is, why did you buy the vehicle you did? What went into making that decision? Maybe you have a, an SUV. Maybe you have a sedan. Maybe you have a, a smart car, an electric car. Or maybe you drive a pickup truck. So obviously people will come to different conclusions on what's best for them based on their budget, based on the size of their family, based on where they live, based on where they got to drive, based on how much they're comfortable paying for gas. All of these things go into it. Do people make a political statement with the vehicle they buy? I don't know. Certainly, I think Alberta's premier has been trying to make some big political statements this week about vehicles, specifically about pickup trucks. Now, there's no doubt that Albertans love their pickup trucks. I don't drive a pickup truck, but I do know a lot of people who do. And I see a lot of pickup trucks in driveways. So people that I don't know, definitely I, I can attest that they drive pickup trucks. I don't know the story as to why they have them. Maybe they use them to haul stuff. Maybe they just like driving a pickup truck. Honestly, I, I don't really care. But it is a, a powerful political symbol, I think, in Alberta. I mean, there's a reason why the premier has made a point, as he did in uh, you know trying to merge the parties and win the leadership, to drive around the province in a pickup truck. There's a reason why the premier's new profile picture on his Twitter account is him behind the wheel of a pickup truck. There's a reason why he chose to wade in on this debate around a Globe and Mail column this week, questioning you know, whether people actually need pickup trucks. So there is that side of the question. Do Albertans have an unhealthy obsession with pickup trucks? And what makes it such a culture war issue politically? Well, someone who's been watching the debate uh, over the last couple of days wrote an interesting piece on all of this at nationalobserver.com. Is uh, writer and journalist Max Fawcett joins us on the line here this afternoon. Max, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Let's start with the politics of it all. Why, why do you think that Jason Kenney dove in and responded to this Globe and Mail article and changed his profile picture and, and everything he's been doing in, in response to this. I think it, it was an easy win for him. It, it, it offered up a, a pretty rich target in the form of a, a columnist from the Globe and Mail in downtown Toronto. You know, I don't think any Alberta politician has ever lost votes by uh, criticizing someone from there. So, you know, I think it, I think it was an easy win for him. You know, th things are are going better right now for us in Alberta, but you know we see case counts spiking. Uh, it, it's not quite the best summer ever that I think he's been trying to tell people. So this was a, a good opportunity to change the channel and and maybe remind people of of the image that that he was more familiar with in 2019 of him in, in the blue truck driving around the province, 
you know, uniting the right. I think that was sort of his happiest moment uh, as as the leader of the UCP. And maybe he he wants to remind voters who have who have strayed from the from the flock a little bit uh, about the fact that he's still that guy. Um, you know, time will tell whether it works. But, you know, in politics, you, if you if you're presented with an open net, you got to take the shot. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, it's something about Kenny as a politician, I think, why he was so effective in kind of being on the opposition side in Alberta and being able to rally against, uh, you know, Rachel Notley and rally against Justin Trudeau. He's really good, I think, as as that kind of an opposition politician, at least in in the Alberta context. But governing's hard. Being the premier's hard. And he's learning that the hard way. Yeah, I mean, I think you would describe him as a a counterpuncher style politician. He does well when he's you know, he's in the ring with a clearly defined opponent. And, and I think the challenge with COVID has been that it's such a difficult opponent to counterpunch. You know, COVID seems to have uh, its own share of counterpunches uh, in terms of, you know, we're constantly sort of two steps forward, one step back, or maybe it's one step forward, two steps back. So I think he was very happy to have a an easier and more familiar target here and, and you know, kind of change the channel a little bit. We'll see. I, I don't know. I've heard from Certainly, it's anecdotal, but but more people uh, sort of saying that that this attempt to re- revive the the truck driving brand kind of comes off as a bit artificial. Uh, that you know maybe it worked in 2019 because people were really anxious for a new government, but it feels like they're anxious for a new government again, and 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 maybe him sort of trying to play the hits is not going to work. It, it seems awkward. I mean, look, I don't think anyone doubts that Jason Kenney's, uh, you know, very much a, a conservative politician, but he's always been more kind of the, the suit-wearing sort of um, policy wonk, academic kind of conservative. He's not the, the populist, rural Albertan, cowboy hat-wearing sort of conservative politician. And, and I mean, that's, that's not meant as a knock on him, but it just, it, it seems awkward when he tries to be that, don't you think? It does. I mean, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. Certainly those who, who know him from his days in Ottawa would suggest that, you know, he's the kind of guy who's comfortable in a nice restaurant. He he, he is a, a globalist, I suppose you could call him, you know, that, that <laughs> apparent term of uh, disparagement that's come about in the last little while. You know, he's, he's a worldly guy, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's fantastic. Um, but yeah, he has tried to refashion himself as a, as a you know, quote-unquote true Albertan, and, and it, it just sits oddly. Uh, you know, I think one of the more interesting contrasts is is that he accuses Rachel Notley and the NDP of, of being sort of not authentically Albertan. But Miss Notley is about as authentic as you get. You know, grew up in northern Alberta, rides a horse with the best of them. And, and he comes off as a guy who grew up in Oakville, which is which is what he is. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that 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 costume is going to work as well as it did in 2019 but but based on where he's polling right now it's not clear that he has much else he can he can pull out of the closet at this point all right so let's talk about the other issue here because you know that what prompted all of this was a column in the globe and mail and there have been some other columns trying to make the, a, a similar argument here that you know pickup trucks are a problem Albertans do like their pickup trucks. I don't think 40% uh, of vehicles on the road is an accurate number. The premier's thrown that around, but certainly a lot of Albertans drive pickup trucks. So w- what's the issue here? Why is there this this backlash against pickup trucks and now obviously the, the backlash to the backlash? I mean, I think part of it is definitely rooted in, in, in the data, in fact. Uh, pickup trucks have higher emissions than smaller vehicles. Pickup trucks are, are more dangerous if you're a pedestrian 
uh, or if you're a bicyclist, or even if you're uh, someone in another car that isn't a pickup truck. You know, the data there is very clear. You know, to be fair, it's not just pickup trucks. It's sports utility vehicles. The, the entire car fleet has gotten bigger over the last decade. Uh, and I think we've kind of gotten used to having just these massive vehicles at our disposal. And part of that is because gas prices have been cheaper. Part of it is because the car companies have the biggest profit margins on these bigger vehicles, and so they're inclined to sell them. But, you know, I, I, I think the backlash comes because some people, in, you know, in Alberta and in Saskatchewan and totally fairly, uh, that's part of their identity. You know, driving a pickup truck is part of what it means to them to be Albertan. And, and I get it. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's about freedom. It's about entrepreneurship. It's about hard work. But you, the, the pickup truck is a pretty good stand in for the values that a lot of Albertans hold dear. But I think we should also remember that this is a very urban province, despite what people in the rest of the country may think of us. You know, Calgary, Edmonton, Grand Prairie, Red Deer, this is this is a province of cities in 2021 more than it is of, of rural areas. And so, you know, while, while there are definitely people in, in, you know, who work up in Fort McMurray or who work on, on a farm or whatever, and they need their trucks and the, all the power to them. I mean, we should all be able to make our own choices. But I don't think people who live downtown and who go, you know, commute to an office and work in a white collar job, not sure they need the pickup truck as much as they may think. And and maybe if they're being honest with themselves, they would admit that it, it's about their identity. It's about what they want to project to the world. Yeah, no, I think it is in a lot of cases. Um, you know, the question is, I mean, at what point should the rest of us concern ourselves with that? I mean, you know, when it comes to, for example, emissions, I mean, you know, we price carbon. If you choose to, to drive, uh, you know, a... Uh, a larger vehicle, then, then obviously you're you're going to pay a price for that that carbon footprint. Um, you know, obviously companies now, the manufacturers are are going to be moving toward electric vehicles. We're going to see electric pickup trucks at some point. So, do those things kind of take care of the problem on its own, or is there any case for going further when it comes to these kinds of vehicles? I think you're right that that you know it it, it is much ado about nothing in some respects because the, the momentum here is clear. Even the major truck manufacturers are announcing that their their future models will be electrified and that they're going to be expanding their range of low emission choices. So I you know I think it's fair to concern ourselves with what people drive today, but the real issue is what they're going to drive tomorrow. You know, what is their next vehicle going to be? And rising carbon prices, the 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 models that companies are putting out and just people's desire to to you know pay less in in fuel costs and let's be honest, electric cars are pretty fun to drive. I, I, I do think this problem will start to take care of itself. The question, I think, is will it take care of itself fast enough? Um, and maybe that's where policymakers can come in just to give a little bit of a nudge to those electric vehicles and, and other lower-emitting choices. I, I don't think under any circumstances should we be banning pickup trucks or, or punishing people who own them because you know people have the right to drive what they think is best for them. But I do think that governments can steer people in the direction of choices that are a little safer for everyone, both in terms of, of long-term climate issues and near-term, uh, you know, road safety issues. Well, more from you, as mentioned, at nationalobserver.com. Max Fawcett, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Much appreciated. Uh, there you go. That's uh, writer-journalist uh, Max Fawcett. Uh, he's got some thoughts on, on this whole debate at uh, nationalobserver.com. Now, a lot of it seems contrived. Uh, I think, you know, those on the left who are saying ban pickup trucks, I mean, it's ridiculous, I think, on, on the surface. I, I think the reaction from the premier is is a little over the top as well. It, it's an easy distraction for him. 
The, the premier loves these kinds of debates, right? I mean, it was similar in a way to the whole business when, the, remember the uh, John A. McDonald statue was toppled in uh, Montreal? I mean, the premier was all over that. Um, because it's, it's easy for him to articulate a position that, that his base can relate to. Again, that's why he was so effective as an opposition politician once he came back to, to Alberta and rallying tremendous support in winning the 2019 election. He's, he's very good at that kind of politics. You know, being the premier and implementing policy and defending your decisions, it's tough. It's tough at the best of times, and it's obviously been a real challenge uh, over the last 18 months. So these kinds of distractions, well, sure. It's, you know, it's like catnip to politicians. They're going to be all over it. But is, is there a real issue here uh, that we need our premier to address? Anyway, your thoughts, your thoughts on this whole debate, your thoughts on why pickup trucks are, are, are now being singled out here by some. Do they represent some kind of symbol when it comes to uh, Alberta and our way of life? So I'm curious to hear from pickup truck drivers why you own a pickup truck. Do you own it for utility purposes? Do you own it because maybe it represents something to you? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.